All right, so uh, on January 10th, uh, 1901, a, a drilling derrick uh, at Spindletop near Beaumont, Texas, uh, struck oil. Uh, and it was a geyser, it was a gusher uh, that co covered hundreds and hundreds of feet of landscape uh, for a long period of time. Uh, when this thing was first struck, it was flowing at a rate of 100,000 barrels a day. Now, that's a lot of oil. Uh, and it took them, because it was so powerful, it took them nine days to finally be able to cap this thing off uh, and control it. And I think that's something like what the book of Daniel is like, right? Uh, the book of Daniel is like a gusher. There is just so much information and it just keeps coming at you, coming at you, uh, that it's really hard uh, to keep it all under control and everything straight. Uh, as the saying goes, uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose when we try and study the book of Daniel. Uh, and that's why we're having this Q&A session. I know that there are many questions that were left unanswered, uh, not only for you, but for me also. As we go through the book, there, there's just a lot in here that we, we have difficulty understanding. Uh, but uh, I received 13 questions, some of them in multi-parts, uh, A, Bs, and Cs, and Ds. Uh, and so each of these questions could probably, uh, the answers could be a sermon in and of itself. Uh, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I've done my best to answer each and every question I received. Uh, the answers will be brief, uh, but I hope that they will be satisfying. And just as you all know, there is so much to study uh, as we come to the book of Daniel or any book of the Bible. And I would encourage you uh, not to forget about the book of Daniel uh, once we finish it today. Uh, there is so much more. Uh, and what we realize about any book of the Bible when we study it is that the deeper you go, the deeper there is to go. You'll never plumb the depths, uh, fully plumb the depths of Scripture. Uh, so uh, we, 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 we always, as Christians, we continue to study the Bible. Okay, with that intro, uh, let's answer some questions. Let's have, let's have some fun here this morning. Uh, so here's the first question. Uh, when did Babylon stop being inhabited? How many people have tried to rebuild Babylon like Saddam Hussein? Well, uh, Babylon has a long, long history that goes back, you know, a thousand years B.C., uh, but after Alexander the Great uh, died and his empire was divided, uh, Babylon uh, continued as a trade center. Uh, and so there was, there was that empire and then there were subsequent empires that followed uh, the Babylonian Empire. But, but the, the city itself, Babylon, uh, had, had never really enjoyed uh, the same kind of prosperity it had under Nebuchadnezzar or Hammurabi before him a few centuries. Uh, and then in the 7th century AD, with the Muslim conquest of uh, Babylon, uh, the city kind of fell into disrepair. Uh, it, it was uh, ultimately, because it, it went into such steep decline, uh, it was ultimately abandoned after the 7th century uh, Muslim conquest. And that's how it remained for 1,300 years or so. Uh, until the, eight, or the 19th and 20th centuries when they started to excavate Babylon. Uh, and from 1904 to 1914, uh, archaeologists began excavating it. And there, it was then that they found uh, this famous Ishtar Gate. Uh, it was the eighth gate of the city of Babylon. Uh, this thing was uh, excavated and it was uh, uh, you know, touched up with, with color, uh, reconstructed, and now sits in a, in a museum in Berlin. Uh, but after, uh, after the 7th century, nobody has really lived in Babylon until Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it. Now, when he tried to rebuild it, he built a palace, and I, it was rather ornate from what I understand. But uh, after his demise, uh, that thing has not been guarded. The palace has not been guarded. So people go there, uh, and they rip off chunks of rock. They take for whatever they can from the inside. And so uh, the palace itself is now completely dilapidated as well. 
And so nobody lives in Babylon. And this kind of fulfills what we read about in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 19, and 21, uh, 19 to 20. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tent. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. So these verses were essentially fulfilled and, and, and meant to be fulfilled by Persia's conquest of Babylon. But we just see uh, the, the providence of God. These verses have been fulfilled from the 7th century on. Babylon has never uh, been uh, a city like it was and, in fact, has been abandoned. Nobody lives there in Babylon today. All right, next question. According to Constable's notes, uh, Daniel provides the key to the overall interpretation of prophecy, is a major element in premillennialism, and is essential to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. So this is where I feel like, you know, I'm being ordained, I'm you know, being grilled by a seminary prof or a law school prof. When I was in law school, they would say, Mr. Jenrick, uh, stand up and recite the facts of Smith versus Jones. And, you know, 20 minutes, you're on the hot seat uh, getting grilled by some law prof. So that's what this is like. Uh, so can you briefly give examples of how Daniel is key in in these three areas. Well, first of all, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom Constable uh, is a former DTS professor, and he's written a commentary on every book of the Bible, which you can find for free at plainobiblechapel.org, and I rely on this thing all the time. Uh, so uh, if you have questions about the Bible, uh, this is a great place to, to look. Uh, but Daniel provides the key uh, to the overall interpretation of prophecy because no other book covers the breadth of time with such uh, broad application and such specificity as the book of Daniel. Uh, so Daniel covers from 605 BC when, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, first came to Babylon and all the way up to the Millennial Kingdom. And so uh, for that reason, you know, theologians who focus on end times theology, uh, when they're building their timelines, they start with Daniel because he covers the longest length of time. And then they fit other prophecy into uh, that timeline that's created by the book of Daniel. Now, reading Revelation and Daniel together uh, makes a strong case for premillennialism. Remember, uh, premillennialists believe that Jesus will uh, return at the end of the seven-year tribulation and immediately before the millennial kingdom, and so Jesus returns before or pre uh, the millennium, and so that's what premillennialism means. So Daniel helps us to understand Revelation, and we can harmonize Daniel and Revelation when we read them together. So uh, we could do it like this. Uh, say, for example, we wanted to start with Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, you remember, predicts four coming kingdoms, right? We have Babylon, we have Persia, we have Greece, and then we have Rome. And then at a later point in time, there will be some revived uh, version of the Roman uh, Empire that will come up at a later time. That's represented by the ten toes of iron and clay on the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, when we get to Daniel 7, remember Daniel 7 predicts the coming Antichrist, as does Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. And in fact, Daniel 9 gives us a time frame. Uh, he will come during the 70th week of, uh, of Daniel, uh, in the middle, uh, I'm sorry, he will come at Daniel's 70th week. That's when the Antichrist comes. That's the tribulation period, which is predicted in Daniel chapter 9, and then described in greater detail in Daniel 11 and 12, and then also in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. 
So when we think about Revelation, John's vision in Revelation mostly concerns the tribulation period. Uh, so uh, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets, all of those things that are going on in chapters uh, 6 through 19 of Revelation, they would be nearly impossible to understand or put a time frame on if it wasn't for Daniel uh, who explained the time frame of it and what would happen in the 70th week as he described in Daniel chapter 9 through 12. Now, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, uh, going back to Daniel 2, remember in Daniel chapter 2, that thing at the top there is the stone that is smiting the, uh, the feet of, of uh, iron and clay of that later kingdom. Uh, that is Jesus' second coming. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to destroy that kingdom that exists when he comes again. Uh, and so he is the smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2. And that is his second coming. So after the tribulation... After Jesus returns, the smiting stone that Jesus is, he destroys his enemies and then he ushers in a millennial kingdom, uh, which will be on this earth for a thousand years. And that's what we see uh, in Revelation 19 and 20. And then uh, we get the new heaven and the new earth, which we see in Revelation 21 and 22. So Daniel and, and Revelation harmonize together quite nicely. And, and Daniel really helps us to understand how Revelation works. So when we recognize that, that if we read the Bible literally, we, we expect literal fulfillment of these prophecies in Daniel. And we also recognize that these prophecies have not yet been fulfilled historically, uh, but one day will be. Uh, that's how we arrive at a premillennial system of eschatology. All these things are major components of premillennial eschatology. Uh, so I hope that answered that question. All right, next question. Uh, is the little horn of Daniel 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist, or both? That's a good question. Because the horns of Daniel uh, are very confusing, right? We have a little horn in Daniel 7. We have a little horn in Daniel 8. Well, the short answer is that the little horn of Daniel 7 is the Antichrist. Uh, the little horn of Daniel 8 is probably both uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. So uh, let me tell you why I believe that. Uh, Daniel 8 focuses on the goat, which is Greece, remember that, who destroys the ram, which is Medo-Persia. And Daniel 8, 20 to 22 describe this. Uh, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that came up in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Okay, so the, there's a goat. There is one horn on the goat's head. The goat is Greece. The horn on the goat's head is Alexander the Great. Uh, but then after Alexander the Great dies, that's the horn being broken off, uh, that horn is replaced by four more horns. Uh, these represent the generals who divided uh, Alexander the Great's empire. Uh, so we have those four separate uh, uh, generals who arose. Now from one of those four horns, uh, the Seleucid horn, uh, the Seleucid empire, uh, a little horn arises. Uh, and this little horn of Daniel 8, uh, discussed in uh, verses 21 and 22 that I just read to you, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, who arises from uh, this Seleucid empire. But then, verses 23 through 25, the very next verses, they likely represent a jump forward in time to the time of Antichrist. So let's read those. 
And in the latter period of their dominion, when the wrongdoers have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and he will be successful and do as he pleases. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will make deceit a success by his influence." And he will make himself great in his own mind, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes did fulfill some of this. You, you could apply some of the, these words and verses to Antiochus Epiphanes, but only Antichrist is going to fulfill all of it. There is, there is uh, a lot contained in these verses that have not yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled historically uh, in the future. And that's why I say uh, that, that there is dual fulfillment in the little horn here. Uh, they were fulfilled in part by Antiochus Epiphanes, but they will be fully fulfilled uh, one day in the Antichrist. Uh, and then Jesus will come and he will destroy the Antichrist. Uh, he is the smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2, and then he will set up his millennial kingdom. All right, next question. How does understanding the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, knowing that Daniel is written to the Jews, help in the study of Daniel? And does the Mosaic covenant negate the Abrahamic? All right, two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and then the law, the Mosaic covenant. God's covenant with Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All right, so that's the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, there will be land, seed, and blessings. And then God reaffirmed and expanded the covenant that he made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. Now, it's important to realize that these promises that God made to Abraham were unconditional, meaning only, God only obligated himself to do something. He didn't obligate Abraham to do anything. Uh, but then the Mosaic Covenant comes along, right? That's 400 years later, as we're told in Galatians. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant includes the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial and the ritual laws, the sacrificial system. All that is the Mosaic Law. That came later. Now, the Mosaic Covenant does not invalidate the Abrahamic Covenant. We talked about this uh, extensively when we covered the book of Galatians uh, earlier uh, in this year. Uh, so just a couple of verses from Galatians. Galatians 3.17 says, What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So the law cannot invalidate God's covenant with Abraham. God's promises are eternal. We also read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has come or has become our guardian, and here's the reason why, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So we're no longer under a guardian. The law no longer applies. Uh, the Mosaic covenant was fulfilled in Christ. Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law. And that's why, the, why Christians, why you and I, are not bound by the law and sacrifices. But... God has not yet fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. His covenant remains unfulfilled, but he will fulfill that covenant. And so 
uh, as to how, this, this, uh, how Daniel's writing pertains to the Jews, <clears throat> Daniel's vision was to encourage Jews. He's writing to Jews uh, to, to assure them that God is not yet done with Israel, that there is still a plan, uh, that, that God would never forsake his people. And as we talked about <clears throat> in chapter 12, Daniel was written mostly for the people uh, who will be in the tribulation, living in the tribulation, undergoing all the things that Antichrist uh, intends for them. And Daniel was writing uh, to encourage those people living in that time uh, that, uh, that, that God was not finished with them, God had not forsaken them, and God will fulfill his covenant with Abraham. So no, uh, the Mosaic law does not invalidate the Abrahamic law. Uh, God will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant uh, with his people in the end of times. <clears throat> All right, here's a fun one. Uh, do you think Daniel was made a eunuch? All right, interesting question. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royalty and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no impairment who were good-looking, suitable for instruction, in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So the first thing we see is that Nebuchadnezzar wanted these youths to have no impairment, right? So there could be no physical defect, nothing wrong with them physically, and to be really bright kids that they could teach and shape into the Babylonian image. And his, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's servant, Ashpenaz, his job is to immerse these kids in Babylonian culture, in their language, in their literature, uh, essentially to take these Jewish boys and turn them into Babylonians. That was the goal. That's what Ashpenaz's job was. Now, as to whether they became eunuchs, well, the debate is over this Hebrew word, saris. Uh, it's translated chief of officials here uh, in, uh, in, in this version, although other versions of the Bible call him the chief of eunuchs. So what we see is that uh, the word saris can refer to a literal eunuch, somebody who has been castrated and entered into the service of the king or for some other reason, but it can also refer to almost any public official. So for example, uh, in Joseph's story, uh, Potiphar, remember Potiphar and his wife who uh, tried to uh, seduce uh, Joseph, uh, Potiphar was called a Saris, uh, a public official. Uh, and we know that Potiphar, of course, was married. He had a wife, and so he was not a eunuch. So was he a eunuch? Was he not a eunuch? Um, was Daniel made a eunuch? Was, were his friends made eunuchs or not? Uh, some, some commentators think that Daniel and his friends must have been made eunuchs because there's no way Nebuchadnezzar would allow these young Jewish boys into their kingdom uh, and have them uh, threaten potentially the harem or have their own sons who might raise up and revolt against the king. Uh, so he would naturally uh, have these youths circumcised, or cir I'm sorry, uh, he would have these, these youths castrated uh, so that they could not have children. And as far as we know from the biblical record, Daniel was never married and never had children. So I guess that's evident that you could say maybe he was castrated. However, uh, it says in the beginning there that he did not want these youths to have any defect, and obviously castration is a defect. 
so uh, we know that at least when he entered, when they entered service, they were without blemish. Uh, and uh, we also know uh, that there is no evidence that they actually were castrated. We're simply just supposing uh, or, or, or guessing here as to whether they were. So there's no evidence that, that, he was cast that they were castrated. And also, as I said, the Hebrew word doesn't require it. Uh, Saris can mean a public official, which Daniel was. So whether Daniel and his friends were actually castrated really is unknown and really is up for debate. Now, personally, I'd like to think that Daniel wasn't castrated. I'd like to think that, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would not have done that to them, but Nebuchadnezzar was a bad man, so he may have done that to them. Uh, but there's really no way to know. The important thing to know is that whether he was castrated or not castrated, Daniel fulfilled his calling, the purposes that God gave him for his life, uh, whether he was castrated or not. Okay, next question. At the end of your sermon, on Daniel 11:36 to 12:3, <clears throat> you said something about our spirit and our body being reunited at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, did I misunderstand? Is if that is true when we die now and go to heaven, are we just spirit? All right. First of all, uh, yes, believers' souls will be reunited with glorified bodies, but that happens at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, not at the end of the millennial kingdom. And this teaching doesn't come from Daniel specifically. In fact, uh, you have to uh, look for various places in the Bible to put this together. Uh, but for the believer in Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible tells us that, that, that after we die, our souls go to heaven because we have believed in Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven. And we can find that in various places throughout the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, uh, to be away from the body uh, is to be at home with the Lord. So the separation of the body uh, and the soul uh, happens at death. Uh, and then this glorification, this new body where souls are reunited with, uh, with glorified bodies. Uh, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for this. Uh, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. So we have bodies here, uh, perishable human bodies that are raised, glorified, and now become imperishable. So while the souls of believers go immediately to heaven to be with him, uh, to be with God, immediately after our death, our physical bodies wait to be resurrected. And at the resurrection, uh, uh, at the resurrection of believers, the, the physical body is resurrected, it's glorified, it's reunited uh, with the soul at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And our reunited, glorified bodies and souls will be ours for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth in, uh, uh, for all eternity, as said in uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, what about the wicked? Uh, likewise, the souls of the unbelieving dead will be reunited and raised with their bodies uh, for the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. But this happens after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand years. Uh, Revelation 20, 13 says this, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they have done. 
So this happens, the great white throne judgment, they're raised up in body, and then God will judge those who have not received Jesus Christ as Savior. And so the truth is, we will all live forever. Uh, and this is just like, a, like when we're looking for real estate. The only question is where. It's all about location, location, location. Uh, so if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about. Okay, <clears throat> next question. Y'all okay? Yeah, this is, uh, this is rolling along pretty quick here. Just give you a chance to digest a little bit, let your food settle. All right. All right, next question. Why the repetition of, or repetition of prophecies concerning the coming empires? Uh, that is true, right? We do see repetition. Uh, chapter 2 is mirrored in chapter 7, mirrored in chapter 8, uh, talked about uh, in chapter 9. Uh, so uh, let's think about that. I think probably the reason uh, for each repetition of the prophecy is that each time a prophecy is repeated, we get a little more information, or it's focused on a different aspect of the prophecy. So, for example, uh, Daniel 7, the vision of the four beasts, is very similar to Daniel 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue, right? There is this coming uh, prediction of the king, uh, kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. <clears throat> but what's interesting about chapter 7 is that it provides a lot more information than chapter 2 does about uh, this coming kingdom of 10 uh, toes of clay and iron. Uh, there's not a lot of information in chapter 2. There's much more in chapter 7. It talks about uh, who this Antichrist is and what he will do. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we get even more information about uh, what he's going to do uh, than we received in chapter 7 or chapter 2. So we, we, we continue to get more information as the revelation unfolds about this coming kingdom of ten toes uh, and what Antichrist will do as the head of that kingdom. Now thinking about Daniel 8... Daniel 8 repeats information that was given in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the focus is on the goat and on the ram, or on Greece and Medo-Persia. So we get incredibly minute detail in Daniel chapter 8, because I think Daniel's purpose with Daniel chapter 8 is to get us to, uh, to, to understand Alexander the Great, the four kingdoms that would rise uh, out of his empire, uh, the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucid Empire, uh, and so all of these things are, are new information that's provided in chapter 8 that's different uh, and further than chapter 7 or chapter 2 took us. And so I think it's just really gracious of God, because this is such a difficult prophecy to understand, to repeat it to us, right? When somebody says something that you don't understand, it's helpful if he says it two times, three times, four times, right? Until you get it. Uh, and so I think it's gracious of God to provide more information uh, as the prophecy goes on. So we would have no doubt uh, about his sovereignty, because we've seen how these prophecies have been fulfilled in, in history. And when we look back at them, as we, as we were doing as we went through the book of Daniel, there can be no doubt that these prophecies have been fulfilled in history because the detail of which these prophecies were given and fulfilled leaves no doubt about that. Okay, so I think that's why the rep repetition concerning the prophecies. All right, uh, strap in. Uh, what exegetical evidence do you see in Daniel that might point to a pre-tribulational rapture, a pre-millennial return of Christ, a literal messianic kingdom? So uh, a question with three parts, and uh, we'll do our best here. So uh, it's impossible, I mean, let's just say it, it's impossible to build a complete system of eschatology from one book in the Bible, right? We can't do that. We need the entirety of the Bible to do that. 
So thinking about just the rapture itself, not the timing of the rapture, but evidence of the rapture, we would look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, which talks about it. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, which talks about it. So uh, there is evidence for a rapture, but as to the timing of the rapture, uh, that it will happen before the tribulation, I look to verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us, that's Christians, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, every funeral I do, I use that verse. I love that verse. Uh, it's such a, a verse that gives us such peace that we have not been appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I also look to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So given the nature of the 70th week that uh, we talked about uh, in Daniel 9, 10, 11, and 12, that this is going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen before, uh, which is really saying something considering all that the Jews have experienced in their long history. Uh, and recognizing that the tribulation is for Israel uh, and not the church, uh, those who hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, uh, that the rapture is going to happen before the seven-year tribulation, uh, believe that the church won't be here for the tribulation. We will be raptured, and uh, it's Israel uh, and other unbelievers who will go through the tribulation. Uh, part B of the question asks about evidence from Daniel for a premillennial return of Christ. Remember, premillennial just means that Christ will return before he sets up his thousand-year kingdom on earth. Well, evidence for that is found all over the Bible, but I think the strongest evidence uh, from Daniel itself comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Remember, that's when the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, and God presents him with a kingdom that will last forever. And then as Daniel chapter 7 goes on, uh, we're presented with uh, verses 23 through 25 about how uh, Jesus will deal with the Antichrist and then set up his kingdom forever. Uh, so, I'm sorry, 25 to 27, this is what those verses say. He, the Antichrist, will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's the second half of the tribulation that we talked about, three and a half years. But the court will sit, and his power, that's Antichrist's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, and his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him." So there's his kingdom set up that will last uh, for a thousand years on earth and then for all time in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, so these verses that I just uh, cited and read about are also strong evidence for a, a literal messianic kingdom on earth, uh, which was part C of the question. And if we wanted more evidence, we could go back to Daniel 2, uh, when Jesus, the smiting stone, destroys that last kingdom. And I think these verses from Daniel chapter 2 may be the clearest verses in all of Daniel uh, about this literal messianic kingdom. Uh, Daniel 2, 44 to 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. 
Okay, so evidence for a literal uh, messianic kingdom. Uh, it's all over the Bible. Uh, you know for yourselves that Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, mentions at least six times uh, a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. Uh, so we expect that to be fulfilled literally. Christ will come to establish his kingdom on earth and fulfill the promises he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a descendant of yours will sit on the throne forever. And Jesus will sit on the throne forever. Okay, here's a fun one. How many lions do you think were in the lion's den? <clears throat> fun question, right? Daniel chapter 6, verse 24 at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So how many lions? Let's think about it. This is all conjecture, but you know, we, we, we can have some fun with this. Let's say that there were five men involved in this conspiracy uh, to have Daniel killed because you know, he was praying to his own God uh, after they had uh, you know, swindled uh, Darius into making this law that anybody who prays to a God other than Darius for 30 days shall be thrown into the lion's den. So let's say it took five guys to, to, uh, to, to come up with this conspiracy. Uh, it might have been more, it might have been less, but let's just use five. Now, if each of them had a wife, now we're up to 10 people, right? Now, if these five couples each had three children, uh, just guessing, could have been two, could have been four, who knows? But let's say five, uh, the three each, that's another 15 people. So now we're up to 25 people. So let's just use 25 as the number. It could have been more, as they say, it could have been less. Uh, how many lions would it take to crush all of their bones before they even reached the bottom of the pit? Well, I would say at least one lion per person. That's what I would think. It's hard for two uh, to get, uh, for one to get two people before they reach the bottom. So I'm going to say one person, uh, for, one person per lion. That's what I'm going to say. So I'm going to say at least 25 lions were involved in this. Uh, again, pure conjecture, but I think it's a reasonable guess and, and a fun thing to talk about. If you're into, you know, people getting eaten by lions. Uh, <laughs> A related question would be, why in the world did they keep so many lions to begin with? Well, why would they do that? Well, that was something that the ancient Near Eastern kings did. The Assyrians, uh, the Persians, the Babylonians, they all kept lions for hunting, and if you can believe it, as pets. They're pet lions. Um, these lions are shown in the reliefs of Assyrian rulers, uh, this one ruler by the name of Asher Nasrapal, uh, who reigned from 863 to 859, and this relief is, is dated from 865 to 860 BC, uh, shows him hunting lions. I know it's difficult to see, but there's a lion under that horse uh, that, that this king uh, has killed. And then uh, later Medo-Persian rulers continued this practice. Uh, here's a relief of King Darius the Great hunting lions in the 6th and 5th century BC. So it seems likely that they kept lions uh, for, for sport and to show their dominance even over the king of the beasts, the king of the jungle. Uh, so that's a good question. Any idea how Daniel died? All right, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say. So biblically, we, we don't know how Daniel died. Uh, the latest date mentioned in Daniel, where Daniel was prophesying, is uh, found in uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. It says, in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. Uh, that's the latest date uh, that Daniel goes. That's 536 BC. That's the third year of Cyrus. And Daniel was about 85 years old at that time. 
now, there are rabbinic sources, speaking about do we know how Daniel died, there are rabbinic sources that say that Daniel was still alive during the reign of Artaxerxes, and it was actually wicked Haman who had Daniel put to death. Now, the problem with that tradition is that Artaxerxes reigned from 464 BC to 424 BC, which would make Daniel 150 years old at the beginning of Artaxerxes' reign. So that tradition is very unreliable and unlikely. And I think most likely Daniel probably died of natural causes very soon after the book of Daniel ended uh, when Jesus told him to go his own way and that he would rest and that at the end of time he would be raised to receive his allotted inheritance. Uh, he had fulfilled God's purpose for his life and God probably called him home soon after. Now, interestingly, uh, around the, the uh, Middle East, there are six cities that actually claim to house the tomb of Daniel. And the most famous one is in Susa, which was the capital of Persia back in those days. Uh, and this is what it looks like. You could go there today if you had any desire to visit southern Iran, which I don't recommend. Uh, but you could do it uh, if you wanted to. All right, next question. Daniel's three friends were in the fiery furnace, but not Daniel. Did he avoid the furnace because he remained in the king's course, uh, court after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream? All right, let's look at Daniel chapter 3. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So I think it's clear that from uh, right from just reading that, that the palace and the Babylonian province and the plain of Dura, are, those are two separate places, okay? So we see that right away. And I think that Daniel was obviously not with his three friends. Most likely, Daniel chapter 2, verse 49, gives us the reason why. It says, At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So we see that there are two different places here. Uh, one commentator by the name of Leupold says that Dura is a rather common name, the, the name Dura, is a common name in Mesopotamia being a name that, that applies to any walled uh, enclosure. Uh, that's called a dura. Now, uh, to him, it seems quite likely that this walled dura that, that they're talking about in the province of Babylon uh, is a place about six miles south of Babylon uh, because there is a massive square of brick construction that still is there today uh, that is about uh, 14 meters square and six meters high. So he thinks that that is the base of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built. So the simplest explanation for this is that the golden image was set up six miles south of the palace in this plain of Dura, and Daniel was either in the palace and somehow exempting from going to this plain where all the other officials were made to go, or uh, he was away on official business while his friends were in the plain of Dura. Now that's about all we can say about why uh, he wasn't there and made to bow down. Okay, <clears throat> next question. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, through 12, Daniel's last vision of the book, how do we know when the angel is speaking and when Jesus is speaking, and is this all one vision? All right, in Daniel uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, uh, Daniel saw a vision of Jesus. He's called the man in linen in verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Uh, when Daniel saw this, he fell down into a deep sleep or he fainted. 
Uh, and then an angel, perhaps Gabriel, probably Gabriel, uh, woke Daniel. And then the rest of Daniel 10 is all Gabriel giving Daniel information, strengthening him uh, for the interpretation of the vision, which he's going to receive in chapter 11, because Daniel was just too weak to receive it after having seen the man in linen. So in chapter 11, Gabriel continued to speak to Daniel, uh, giving Daniel detail about the wars uh, between the kings of the north and south in verses 5 to 20, and about what was going to happen uh, in uh, the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 21 to 35, and then uh, throughout the rest of chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, talking about the reign of the future Antichrist. So that takes us through chapter 11. Then in Daniel 12, Daniel is still with Gabriel, and now suddenly there is an angel on one side of the Tigris River, an angel on the other side of the Tigris River, and here again is this man in linen. This time he's floating above the Tigris River uh, between the two angels, and so uh, I think he's floating to show that he has more authority than the two angels. Uh, he answers questions that the angels can't answer, uh, and he shows his authority. So one angel asks about the timing of the events. Uh, that, the answer to that question doesn't satisfy Daniel. So Daniel himself asks about the outcome of these events. And then Jesus tells Daniel to go his way to the end. He would rest, and at the end of days, he would receive his allotted inheritance. So Daniel chapter 10 to 12 are all one vision uh, with many participants covering the kings and the empires that would rise from the beginning all the way in Daniel's day, all the way to the end of the tribulation and Jesus establishing his millennial kingdom. Okay, how are we doing? Still doing all right? All right. All right, two more. Since Satan is not all-knowing, do you believe that he has an antichrist ready for every generation waiting for Jesus to return? Isn't that interesting to think about, right? That, that antichrists are uh, living among us, right? Not among us here in this, in this room, I hope, but uh, living among us uh, in our society, right? Uh, I, think, I think he must. I think Satan must, because as the question points out, Satan is not all-knowing uh, as God is. Uh, God has a plan, but Satan doesn't know every particular detail of it. Now, remember in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, uh, the Thessalonians were writing to Paul because they were concerned that they had missed the perusia, the, the coming of Jesus and the gathering of his people. Uh, and so Paul wrote back to them, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, you have not missed the coming. Uh, you, you haven't missed it. And there are signs uh, that will indicate when it is coming. And in verses 7 to 8 of that chapter, he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is removed. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So the lawless one is the Antichrist. And I believe that the one who is restrained, who will be removed, is the Holy Spirit who lives now in each of us, every believer in Jesus Christ. When the rapture happens, you and I will all be taken up uh, off the earth, into heaven, uh, and in that way, the Holy Spirit's presence is removed from the earth. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's Satan, Satan's antichrist, uh, who will then begin his work. And then later, uh, the Lord will eliminate him with the breath of his mouth. Now, as to whether antichrists are living among us today, well, John clearly thought they were living among them in his day, and that's why he writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. 
So many antichrists are in the world. And since Satan does not know when the Holy Spirit will be taken away, I think that Satan must have at least one antichrist uh, in every generation ready to serve as the antichrist, the one who will will fulfill all of these things. All right, last question. God granted Daniel favor in the sight of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and Cyrus. He protected Daniel in the lion's den. He protected Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace. How should we respond and or counsel people when things don't turn out well? Uh, I saved this question for last because it's very applicational, and I think it's something that that we ought to be thinking about uh, as we uh, think about what the book of Daniel means to us. Uh, And I think that the answer is that that we should accept God's sovereignty uh, as these three young men did, as Daniel did. Uh, In fact, some of the best verses in Daniel, if not the whole Bible, uh, is found in uh, Daniel's three friends' response to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, I'm giving you one last chance to bow down before this statue, and if you don't, you're going into the fiery furnace. This is what they said. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These are three guys I want to go to war with, right? These are guys who they know their Lord, and they know that he is in control. Now, as to how we are to respond when things don't turn out so well, when God doesn't rescue us from the fiery furnace that we may be in, you know, it would be wonderful if God healed every disease, if he eradicated every illness, uh, if he saved us from the consequences of our own sin or the consequences of living in a sinful world, uh, or if he protected us from every persecution that we might face. That's not God's promise to us, right? Jesus said, in this world you have, will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So God's promise to us is not that we'll be kept from trouble. In fact, that it's, it's that we will have trouble. But God's promise to us is that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will serve eternally all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so if we can trust Jesus with our salvation, we can trust him with all the things that are happening to us in the day-to-day, in the things we don't understand, in the circumstances that seem too difficult to bear, uh, in all the whys of life. Why God? Why God? Uh, Better to ask the question, what God? What God are you trying to teach me through this thing? Uh, So I think that that, uh, we trust Jesus with our salvation. We trust him with our day-to-day circumstances. We trust that he will make beauty out of all the mess that exists in our lives, whether through our fault or just the, the fault of living in a sinful world. And he will use it someday for our good and for his glory. All right. I know that this has been a challenging book. Uh, this has been, we've been in the deep, the deep end here, uh, digging into some of this stuff in Daniel. Uh, but I really hope that it has helped enrich uh, your personal view of God and God's sovereignty uh, and how in control of every single event there is. So when you look around this world and you see all the craziness going on, we can look back to Daniel. There was craziness going on in his day too, right? And yet God was sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over everything that's going on in our world today. You know, God is under no obligation to explain every single detail or give us answers to our why questions. He's, he's not under obligation to do that. 
but hopefully the book of Daniel has taught you and me uh, to trust him even more because God's promises are eternal. Uh, And as the book ends in Daniel 12, uh, Jesus tells Daniel, go your way. Uh, Just go your way. Uh, Not everything is for you to know, Daniel, and and it's going to be okay. Uh, And I think that message is for, for you and it's for me too. Not everything is for us to know. Psalm 23 says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's all we need to know. Uh, So as we come out of Daniel, though we still have questions, just like Daniel still had questions at the end of the book, uh, God's sovereignty and his goodness are beyond question. And we know that because Jesus sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have eternal life. And so if we've Uh, placed our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have nothing to fear in this life or the next. I thank you for your questions. I pray that it it answered more questions than it raised. Uh, But uh, we're through with the book of Daniel, and I, again, encourage you to study this on your own uh, in greater detail. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for this book of Daniel. Uh, What a treasure trove of information that is found here that is not found anywhere else in the Bible, Lord. And uh, it just gives us such comfort to know uh, that you can ordain what is going to happen and then you can uh, make sure that it does happen according to your will. And Lord, the things that have not yet happened, we trust that these things will happen. Uh, Lord, primarily uh, the return of Jesus Christ as you have promised and salvation uh, for your saints who have placed their faith in him. Uh, Lord, we look forward to that day. Uh, We say, as the book of Revelation says at the end, come Lord Jesus, come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.